Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to Chasing Poker Greatness. This is your host, as always, Brad Wilson, the founder of EnhanceYourEdge.com. And today's guest is a man that needs no introduction, the one and only Scott Seaver. With that said, going to go light on the intro today, just jump right into the conversation. Pro tip, be sure to stay all the way through the end. Because the closing drum solo is a thing of beauty. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Scott, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. been looking forward to it. Um, so I've learned that outside of poker, you're, you're also somewhat of a musician could you tell me tell me about your music career how'd you get into get into playing music uh right well i i grew up in denver colorado and i had a little mini like a little toy piano uh when i was really young and i would i would play along with my records that i had and um because I had a record player and I really loved it. And I loved uh, that I could figure out songs just by ear. And my parents saw that and they asked if I wanted to take piano lessons. And I said, yes, um, as opposed to having them kind of thrust on me, but I decided to take piano lessons. And so when I was six and uh, played, I took piano lessons until I was 13 at which point I decided to start playing drums. Yeah, I, I, I always kind of wanted to learn more sort of popular music or, you know, Im- improvisational music than classical music. And that was what I was learning on piano was classical stuff. And uh, so I ended up shifting over to drums, which I also really loved to do. And uh, so when I was 14, I got a drum set. And... Um, I started playing in bands around Denver. I never, I never was a member of a jazz band in high school or anything like that, or any marching bands or anything. But uh, I did have uh, a couple bands that I played with around Denver, and we would play gigs uh, with, you know, other Denver local bands. And we did that. For, I did that for a long time, well, through high school, and then I ended up going to the Berklee College of Music in Boston to study music. And, you know, the rest is kind of, I mean, I can keep, you want me to keep going with the, the timeline? <laughs> yeah, keep going. <laughs> tell me, tell me about Berklee. Okay. I mean, tell me about, um, you know, how, how did it feel like the first time you were on stage playing drums in high school in front of a, front of an audience? It was really fun. You know, those, those, uh, first kind of shows you know it was before there was any sort of um defeat 
before I had incurred any sort of defeat of any type in, in music, you know, I, I was sort of really uh, confident and I had, <laughs> there, there had not yet been any sort of humbling experience. Um, and I remember those days being really fun and, and uh, kind of fearless and, and great. That, that, that sounds awesome. And you kind of foreshadowed, right? Um, before a defeat. Tell me, tell me about the first, the, the first defeat or a memorable defeat. There's, you know, there's so many, you know, I, it's just, I mean, for example, you know, you, if you're, if you're in a band that doesn't do well, that's a defeat. If you go to an audition to try out for a band, you don't get the gig. That's a defeat. If you're, you know, playing uh, a show and you do something that doesn't live up to your expectation as a musician. And even if nobody else notices, that's a defeat. You know, I mean, there's, there's a zillion different kinds and they happen all the time. But um, all I, all I meant was that, you know, before I was even aware of those things is when I started performing. Right. And so that's kind of a thing I guess I've never even thought this, but I, I think that's kind of a a thing I'm trying to get to again, you know, like it's, it's such a, a idealistic feeling. And uh, I, that's kind of what you chase, chasing greatness. Chasing greatness. You're cutting out all the stuff out of your peripheral vision, um, just bearing down and doing what you love uh, versus it's having true. to worry about the anxiety, the stress, any, any, big tryouts, things that you just really, really wanted in any specific bands that didn't work out that, that you care about talking about? No, I mean, nothing really specific. I mean, the the first few years after I moved to LA, I live in Los Angeles. Um, I moved here in at the end of the 90s. And at that time, the music business was still really kind of bustling. It hadn't uh, it hadn't incurred its MP3 demise yet, you know? <laughs> Why do you say that? Why do you say MP3 demise? Well, I mean, you know, the introduction of the MP3 brought on a kind of uh, a dark period in music, in the music business, because everybody, uh, everybody assumed that they could get whatever they want musically for free, you know, through illegal downloading or whatever. And that was basically the signal of the end of people buying music, you know, I mean, do you go out and, and buy CDs? No, I do not. There you go. I'm not even sure I have a CD player. Or do you go out and buy records or anything? Like, I mean, you might pay for a, a monthly Spotify membership. I mostly just or listen, listen Apple to like music satellite radio, uh, satellite, yeah, see, there you satellite go. radio or Pandora on my TV, something like that. But see, what used to happen was people used to go out and buy albums, you know, and then that money would go back to the artist. Well, a part of it would. And that was the sort of the business of music. Right. Um, and then that kind of went away. And so then, of course, there was like, you know, there's there's been sort of a it's kind of the wild west. You know, nobody has any idea what's going to happen next. And there's not a whole lot of money being made. And people have to be all super scrappy and do a million different kinds of things in order to make a living. 
which is what I do. I mean, I, I, it started with just playing drums and bands, but then now I also, well, and for a long time, actually, I've been producing albums for people and recording on a lot of people's albums and, you know, co-writing with people and composing music for TV stuff or commercials or even some films, you know, you just have to be sort of a jack of all trades as opposed to just being a drummer, which, uh, you know, if it were the eighties, that would have been fine. Right. And it's interesting that like from the, the artist's perspective, like that, the era of MP3s is like the dark age from a consumer perspective. It's just like a huge boon, right? Um, oh, for sure. Like the world is suddenly at your fingertips and you can do, you can hear whatever you want, whenever you want for free. We just got so much more access to, to all of this music. And uh, right. it's really like a disruption of the market. Just the whole market got disrupted and then Tower Records and all of the CD stores, they just kind of went busto overnight, like Blockbuster That's right. and DVDs. That's right. And the whole the same thing happened in TV and, and movies too, when people were, you know, downloading those things illegally also. And then the unions like the Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA and like all these other uh, organizations that were so much more powerful than the musicians union rallied and did, did, you know, made, they made changes to the way they were presenting their product and ended up coming out. Okay. You know, so far at least, you know, pay subscription TV and like, you know, and, and then of course after that and sort of under that model, Spotify and Apple music and title and, you know, music streaming services have tried to do the same thing, but they don't really, they haven't really figured it out. And music copyright law is really old and outdated. And it's just, people are just starting to kind of get on top of that stuff and change it and make it better for artists. Yeah. I would imagine like, so artists and musicians, they kind of had to turn into businessmen because the business model just changed and it's true people had to figure out you know how to work within the new model because you can't retroactively go back right pandora's box was opened and then it just was what it was so i know that there are some artists who have released like free uh free content and asked for money money, um which is like just something that you never would have thought of pre yeah uh, pre the mp3 revolution I remember when Radiohead did that, like, right, you know, God, it must have been like 2000, early 2000s, you know, and we're just going to put this album out for free and you can pay us whatever you want. And I remember, like, I, I was I was so excited about the fact that they were doing that, that I, you know, I paid $20 for, for their CDs worth of album, you know. Yeah. Do you have any idea how that did, how that, that little experiment worked? Cause I, I'm not well, sure. I think it worked well from what I remember because they owned all the rights to their music. I don't think they had a label at that point. I think they put it out themselves. And so they made a hundred percent of that money as opposed to making, you know, a, a very small percent of more money. Um, so I think they actually did well. Yeah. That makes sense. It, it makes sense. And, like there's the whole, you know, with Kindles and books, um, that whole, the publishing space is something also got turned on its head, right? Like all the bookstores are now struggling. 
by Barnes, right. Barnes and Noble is like the one guy. There's no more Borders books anymore. Borders books and CDs. That's right. What a what a antiquated <laughs> antiquated <I know>. uh, <laughs> business model that was. Um, I yeah. remember. It's just technology is funny, man. I remember in the mid, well, probably about 2003, 2004, uh, they had these DVDs that lasted like 24 hours in the like Mission Impossible style stopped working. Uh-huh. Um, and there was also a printing press that was like one of the innovations of the year where it was like in an airport and you could choose a book that you wanted to read and it would print it right there for you and like put a cover on it. Right. <laughs> and I remember thinking that is badass. Like that is the most amazing thing. And then like a year later, Kindle comes out and good game. Yeah, exactly. Game, yeah. Press. But yeah. So, so, you know, the, everything changes. You're still in the music business. That's right. Now you're the drummer for Tenacious D. Let's, let's kind of get up to speed there and see like the linear story. Um, can you lead me how, how from that point in time to now from, you know, like the mid two thousands, the mid two thousands, I wasn't involved with them yet. I, I was, you know, I was living in Los Angeles and I was doing a ton of other, uh, playing with other people, a lot, a lot of other touring with other bands. And I got married and, and my wife and I ended up having a child. And, and so like, you know, I, I just basically had a life, um, outside of music, obviously, but I, 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 th- I guess it was not until 2011, I think when I first met the guys in Tenacious D because my friend was producing uh, the album of theirs called Rise of the Phoenix and Dave Grohl, who, who had historically played on all of the albums, all the studio stuff that Tenacious D had done up to that point um, and was on that one as well, wasn't around when they wanted to record a couple of other songs. And so my buddy who was producing the album called me and just asked if I would do it. Of course, I'll love to do that. <laughs> yeah. So I went in and I, I met Jack and Kyle in a studio, and um, also John and John, the guitar and the bass player. And John Spiker is what he's the bass player. He was engineering the album, and um, we yeah, I recorded with them that day, and it was really super fun. And then that was it. And they already had another drummer, this great drummer, Brooks Wackerman. Um, and he, he did the tour for that album, but then he was also in another band called bad religion at the time and was very busy. And, um, they needed, they needed somebody to be able to do the, the tours when they got offered tours and Brooks was often too busy to, uh, be able to say yes to everything. And so, because I guess he was, he was a full member of Bad Religion, and so he couldn't pass anything up, I think, you know, financially or contractually. Um, and so then I, they asked me if I could do a, a European tour in 2013, and of course I was, I was all over it. Yes, absolutely yes. And so I did that, and it was the greatest time ever. And then there was one more tour after that that Brooks had already agreed to do, and he did that. It was an Asian tour. And then after that, it's just been me ever since. And since then, there's been a live album that 
I'm on, I think 95% of it. And, and then there's been another uh, studio album last year that came out that Dave Grohl and I are both on. That's awesome, man. And um, yeah, and then it's just a lot of touring since then. And we actually just got back yesterday from South America. So tell me, so like, let's get a, let's get an insider's look at like, what is a tenacious D tour look like? So I've had the opportunity. Uh, uh, I have played some cards with a, a famous pop star, um, one uh-huh. Br- Bruno Mars in Los Angeles. Okay. And so he was telling, he was telling me that it's kind of like a night gig. What are, what are your thoughts? Like, what, what is your experience as far as like, preparation, um, taking care of yourself, making sure you have enough energy for said, uh, right. Presumably night gig. I mean, this seems biologically like a hard thing to do. Yeah. Touring is not, um, it's not the easiest way to live life. Um, I, the preparation for me is obviously before a tour, (laughs) you know, just making sure that I'm, you know, up to date with like, or just that every, all the music's under my hands, you know what I mean? Just so I'm, I'm feeling confident about everything. Just do a lot of, you know, rehearsing and practicing on my own just to make sure. Cause it, there's, it's a pretty demanding gig musically. There's a lot of super aggressive um, drumming, you know, fast and choppy drumming. And then, you know, there's a drum solo in every, every show, which is really funny. Um, why is it funny? And so, you know, I, it, 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 how is it funny? Yeah, or why, why is that funny? Like, oh, I just, the idea of a drum solo is funny to me, which it's, it's very fun to do, but it's also something that I, you know, a big rock and roll drum solo is not really what, what I had ever done historically, you know, in front of, you know, in front of a festival crowd of like 80,000 where you just have to take a solo and, uh, <laughs> Sounds intense. It's you know it can be it can be kind of terrifying and it can also be really fun and there's a challenge where you don't want to do the same thing every night and you you it's just really exciting and so you know being ready for that stuff physically is huge preparing uh, on my own is is really what what will get me through that stuff because I I don't want to be out there you know and not feel like I have my my faculties, you know, of course. What, what is a physical process of, of preparation look like for you? So, yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a studio at my house and, uh, I'll spend a few days before the band convenes to rehearse for a tour, just reviewing the music and, and playing through, uh, the whole set or the whole set's worth of songs. And then even, you know, uh, come up with some concepts or ideas with with uh, what to do during a drum solo, which is again like just funny to me in a great way. Um, and yeah, it's 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 so it's just a lot of practicing on my own. And then the band will you know get together and practice for a few times before we leave for a tour. Nice. And then on tour, you're just oh, so then on tour, right? Then then you're. I mean, this band luckily is, is at a really nice, like a high level of, uh, it, it's a high functioning band with regards to the amenities and the comfort level with traveling and all that stuff. It's not as difficult as 
a lot of other tours can be, you know, with, there's no, we're not in a van. We're not doing these, you know, epic eight hour drives <clears throat> with everybody switching off and trying to get to the, you know, next town before sound check. And it's not like that. This is more just, you know, like it's, 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 it's much more, it's much easier than that. You've piqued my interest. Um, uh, could tell me a story about a low functioning van. Oh, well, I mean, or is that most bands? <laughs> I think that's, yeah, that's the, the, the majority of touring is just, you know, is van touring with a bunch of buddies and you're slugging it out and you're sleeping on floors and you're, you're drinking too much and then you're miserable and then, you know, people don't get along. Why, why is like drinking, like why are drugs and drinking associated with, musicians and rockers um i've always been curious the best answer i could come up with right now off the top of my head is that there's just such an insane amount of free time you know there's just such an amazing amount of downtime like if your job is playing a show and you do that for i don't know an hour and a half every night two nights on one night off three nights on one night off or you know if you're a real up-and-coming band you have to play all the time six nights on one night one night off but it's still just like an hour and a half a night then you have all this other time where your adrenaline has now kind of been you know released into your body <laughs> and you're kind of just left to uh try to deal with it and it's just you know it's it seems very easy to kind of have a a, a bunch of drinks after yeah. that you're self self-medicating in a way sure I've never considered the aspect because poker is the same where your adrenaline is so high and then that's right. And then just immediately goes all the way back down. Um, and then having to cope with that's right. physiological issues is that's probably where that comes from actually. Yeah, that's right. I think that's probably where a lot of the kind of um, almost costuming with poker players comes in where they're just trying to kind of hide more even more so than than trying to not give a, a tell or not you know I, you know i just it's more just like a a retreat into like a meditative kind of i'm just going to be in my own weird world yeah you have to understand too about like a lot of poker players uh making their way to the game uh, i think a lot of them are fairly socially awkward anyway uh-huh and uh -huh. so being in a social setting like a live poker table is um I'm sh it causes terrifying. terrifying. It causes a lot of anxiety. So they're effectively just trying to, you know, be like a, a wallflower, um, put That's on, right. put on the hoodie, put on the sunglasses and just kind of disappear into the background. Not, not fall victim to the, you know, a release of adrenaline and the, you know, like that kind of stuff, which can be exacerbated by the social element. Oh, for sure. For sure. But okay, let's, let's go back to, uh, touring with tenacious d um down in like south america you're traveling around performing for eighty thousand folks i'm sure there's a pretty big adrenaline dump directly after that oh 100 have you gotten better over the years and being able to handle it and if so what's that look like uh i have yeah you know there's a whole slew of different ways of, of handling that um one is to, uh, you know, just put your head down, go into it, 
do your best, you know, and, and whatever. And then another is to, you know, try to put things in perspective and realize how lucky you are and, and go down and, and really soak into the gratitude of everything, which is a really great way to be, which is sometimes hard to do that. And then sometimes it's just to think about other things and, and realize kind of how fleeting all of it is. And, and I don't know, there's, you know, it's, it's trippy. It's very, it's very confusing sometimes psychologically. Um, especially in that band where it's not really a band, it's really Jack and Kyle. And then the three of us are sort of hired guys, even though we've been in the same incarnation for, well, was since 2013. Um, and those, the other, the other guys besides me have been in, in the band since before, you know, 2005 maybe, but you know, we go from complete anonymity and then we get on stage and we play a show and then we kind of walk off stage and we're back kind of anonymous, which is interesting too, with, with regards to the adrenaline and all that, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's kind of cool too, because we don't, you know, run the risk of getting hounded if we walk out and, you know, just go into the public. Whereas Jack and Kyle, we, you know, we can't go anywhere without them getting hounded by people for photos and signatures and stuff. Yeah. That's, Actually, in my eyes, that's a that's a positive for you. Yeah, well, yeah it's a positive for me too. Being being yeah. more anonymous. It's great. It, it actually is very. It, it feels very lucky. Yo, Coach Brad here, and I have a very simple question. How would you like an opportunity to join Nick Howard's crew at Poker Detox? This is a chance for you to have world class coaching and hop on the fast track to destroying online cash and MTTs without risking your own money or enduring years of pain trying to figure things out on your own. I recently had the good fortune to go behind the scenes with Nick and his detox crew to experience for myself their training methods and quite frankly I was blown away and have never seen anything like it. The Poker Detox system is both powerful enough to supercharge your game and simple enough to implement hand after hand. In the last year, they have verifiably fast-tracked multiple players from 50 no limit all the way up through 1k no limit, and on average, their players are winning 8 big blinds per 100 on non-app sites across all stakes, with the majority of volume being played at 200 through 500 no limit. However, this opportunity is not for wannabes or lazy bums. This is for folks who are obsessed and want to do the work so that they can reach their full potential as poker players. To qualify, you must be able to provide a break-even or winning graph in cash games or MTTs over the last three to six months and be willing to play full-time. To take the next step, all you have to do is send me that graph via email, brad at enhanceyouredge.com, or send a direct message to at EnhanceYourEdge on Twitter, and I'll personally guide you through the next step in the process. Once again, that email is brad at EnhanceYourEdge.com, and the Twitter handle is at EnhanceYourEdge. Thank you for your time. I'd love to hear from you soon. And now, back to the show. Yeah, you know, I was I, I was just we, we, we just did a couple of these shows in South America. We were we were playing with the Foo Fighters and with Weezer, 
And I was talking to Taylor, uh, the Foo Fighters drum, drummer, and he he and I were just talking, like, you know, it kind of got to, like, do you get nervous? Like, when do you – he was he was asking me if I get nervous still when I play, and I I said, yeah, sometimes I do. And he was like, I get so nervous still so when I play. You know, he's in and he's in the one of the biggest rock bands in the world. You know, and it's it's interesting. Like, you know, I think we all sort of still get nervous and still feel the stress of trying to not let anybody down. You know, of course, uh, this is human nature. I think that right, we're not cyborgs. Nobody's a robot. Whether you're drumming in front of eighty thousand folks or performing while you're playing poker for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, like right, you still have nerves and you have nervous energy. And I would say this: like some of the best wisdom that I got is from a friend of mine, Adam Creek. He's an Olympic gold medalist uh, rower, and he told me before they got into their boat. Uh, in uh i think they won gold in beijing he said they were nervous like everybody's nervous right and they were the favorites to win the gold medal they had crapped out in athens four years before they got like fifth it was a massive disappointment for them and so this was like their moment right that everybody had been working for and he was telling me they're standing on the dock one of the things they did is they all peed. <laughs> they all peed into a, a little jug um, to make themselves as light as possible. And then they all started expressing gratitude for this nervousness, for this nervousness and this anxiety. And I'm like, why the gratitude for the, the nervousness and anxiety? And he told me, because it's energy. You can either funnel it in a positive way or you can funnel it in a negative way. And uh -huh. that really struck a chord with me. In all of my ventures, you know, whether it's before I, I interview somebody for my show, b before I make a, a video, a training video, before, you know, whatever, I, I'm performing for thousands and thousands of dollars. Like I, I, when I feel that anxiety now, I think I, I express gratitude, right? Like, thank you for this yeah. energy. It's going to power me through. It's what's going to make me do an awesome job. Yeah, 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 yeah. To not try to push it away, not try to, you know push that nervousness under the rug and ignore it, but rather to just be like, yep, there it is. Yeah. I feel, I feel nervous and it's, that's totally okay. And it's going to be fine. And there it is. There's my nervousness. Yeah, exactly. You know? I get the sense that, that mindfulness is probably a big part of your life just from some of the things you said. Yeah. I mean, it's, I really try. I, I've got a long way to go for sure. But, you know, I, I try to do that in everything, you know, from the music and playing shows to being a dad, you know, everything. I just want to be completely whatever, open about it all, you know, and, and present. Present. Yeah. Just feel because, I mean, the fact of the matter is like there's so many demands on our attention nowadays not being Jack Black, right? Like, I mean, Jack Black, <laughs> he, he probably has a million extra demands on his uh, attention from just random other human beings. But like, you know, we're uh -huh. assaulted by our phones. We're assaulted by just uh, all of these different sources of inputs. And even in, you and I can be in a room together, right? And we can not right. be present. We can, we can be in the same room, but that doesn't mean that we're communicating or interacting in any way. And we can do the same yeah, with our kids, absolutely. like just be on our phone 
in a room with our kid who's on their iPad. And like, yeah, we're, that's right. We're near each other, but we're not really spending time with one another. That's right. Um, you know, and it's what is amazing being around somebody like Jack, who is incredibly famous and really does an insane job at being totally present with everybody. Really? Somebody comes up to him at an airport. It's such a great thing to meet you. I, you know, want to get a photo. Come on, give me, you know, let me see your phone. I'll do the, I'll take it, you know, and talking to everybody and, and just making everybody feel special because he is just present. Is this something he's worked on? I think he's just uh, that person. You know, he's always been incredibly outgoing, kind hearted, you know, uh, and, and so he, I, it just comes very naturally to him. It seems, I don't know. He's probably, he, I've never really talked to him about that, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's been an element of trying to stay on top of it, but I think he's just naturally that person. And so it's really cool to have that as a role model. You know, when I'm having my sort of incredibly plebeian <laughs> concerns of like, what am I going to do in my drum solo? And then realizing, oh, wait, Jack can't even walk outside. <laughs> right. You know, Jack and Kyle both handle it really well. I think that it's, it's very cool to watch. And uh, I, I can definitely try to, you know, do better and, and have less of a kind of a, an insecurity in my own head with regards to, you know, things that don't really matter. Right, right. And it, it, they're, they're partners um, in their their venture so it makes sense that they would be alike you know they would be friends and share the same commonalities and be the same way like i, I know that there are a lot of uh, you know famous musicians or I, actually i'll say i assume there are a lot of musicians that are more aloof and don't engage in that way have you found that to be the case maybe i'm just stereotyping sure i you know i i think that you know it's you have to kind of realize that everybody's a human being and everybody has good and bad day and can, you know, people cannot be them best, their best selves at any given moment. You know, I mean, it, it's just in hum, human nature. The sad thing about a celebrity is that it's kind of like, it's kind of like being a goalie in soccer. Like you can save nine goals and let one through and you've ruined everything for your team. You know, like if, if a, a celebrity is nice to 99% of everybody they meet and tips insanely well at restaurants and takes whatever photo anybody ever wants, you know, for, with them and all that stuff. And then there's that one person who maybe even by accident feels like that celebrity has treated them badly. They can go, they can go on the internet and like the celebrity will have a bad reputation. So, you know, it's, it's insane. You got to be, I can't, I can't imagine, but you, I, I would say that those guys have a lot of pressure on them to be really nice all the time. Yeah. To be on top of it, like 24 seven. Mm-hmm. And also humans have a negativity bias too, right? Like we, we remember the negative and forget about the positive and fan, you know, is short for fanatic as it is. So like, they're probably not uh, always taking into consideration like, hey, maybe this dude is just really tired. Maybe he's had a bad day. You know, they are, right. or he or she, you know, they are human beings. 
who are fallible. That's right. So let's uh, let's go from like now to ten years in the future. And ten years from now to ten years, what are your accomplishments going to be? What are your what's your big goal? What's your aim? Um. Wow, that's something I never. Uh, I don't spend enough time thinking about the future. Um, I think I'm pre-programmed to kind of white knuckle it right, right here, right now. But if I do, I, you know, I would love to um, manifest a way to have a, a comfortable career in music, you know, for the rest of my life, whether that's, you know, continuing to tour with bands and play and record and that kind of stuff, or if it's, developing a library of music that music executives or directors or whoever can draw from to put in their, their work to, you know, garner sort of licensing money or whether it's, you know, producing new artists and continuing to do that and write music with people. And I don't know, it's, I, I, I guess truthfully, like I'm really happy doing what I do and, even though it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a crazy way to live. Um, it's, it's really worked so far. And I just want to kind of continue to be good at what I do or try to be good at what I do. And we'll just work on, on stuff that's workable. It's tough to kind of, uh, manufacture a goal in this world, in this business, you know? Without it, without it sounding kind of overly generalized, like I want to be, I don't want to be broke. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah, I think this is a this is a pretty obvious one, um, but I think I think you you nailed it on the head a- in that you know in ten years, just be grateful that you are present today and that you're enjoying living a happy life. I think that that you know what is more worthy than that as far as accomplishments go. Yeah, I want to feel like that in the future. I want to feel like that in the future. Still, I want to be happy with what with what I'm doing and my decisions. That's I think that's the only. I, I, it's it's very tough. I just can't come up with anything more specific than that. I don't think you know. Sure. Yeah. No. That that's good though. I I I, I love that answer. It resonates with me. Yeah. What's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? Um, I am, I have a producing partner that I've been doing a lot of stuff with. Um, so for years I would, I've produced a ton of albums on on my own and, uh, I would always have this guitar player who is a, just a massive talent play on everything I would work on. And then we just finally realized, let's just do stuff together. Let's just produce it together. It's more fun. You could go, you know, works faster. It's more inspiring, um, less individual workload, more sort of forward movement. And so I've been doing that with uh, him for, you know, a couple of years now. And uh, he's just incredible. And I'm really excited about our sort of workload that we have together. His name's Tim Young. He's a guitar player. He plays, uh, he's the guitar player on the James Corden show with uh, the singer comedian Reggie Watts. And um, he's just a, yeah, he's badass. I'm excited. I'm excited about our, our projects that we're doing. 
we call our we call our production um, team Thunder Shirt. Thunder Shirt. Fun Thunder Shirt. Why is that? Where'd that come from? Uh, it's because when there's a thunderstorm, dogs and and sometimes bigger dogs or I guess any dog really would get super freaked out by the loud noises, fire fireworks, and you know thunder. And uh, so they they make these really tight fitting kind of garments for animals that you can put them put around them and it'll kind of hug them and make them feel safe. Oh wow! Thunder shirt. Yeah. yeah. So we're yeah. we're basically tightly tightly holding these people that we're working with to make them feel better. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. It all makes sense now. Um, <laughs> Uh, if you could gift the um, Chasing Poker Greatness audience one book to improve their life, their poker game, what would it be? I feel like I'm going to keep thinking about that for the next few minutes while we talk about other stuff, and then it'll come to me because otherwise you'll just sit here and like it'll be silence while I no 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 go actually I you know this search. is. This is audio podcast, so you have time. And I actually only have one question left um, for where the okay. folks can find you on the interweb. So, all right. Well, I have my uh, my website, which is scottseaver.com. and um, that's s c o t t s e i v e r. Any interest in selling selling that website? No, God, no. Um, although you know, there there was not even an offer made. So <laughs> you'll have to tell the story because that was before the recording. Yeah, that that I'll, you want to tell the story. Well, I mean, it's not it's not really that great of a story. Just uh, there was I, I've had that URL for a long time uh, since well before I had a website there. And um, there's another there's another Scott Seaver in the world who is by all. By chance, just by chance, is a very successful poker player, and um, I think he he really wanted the URL, and so he asked if I if he could have it because because he, he he noted that I was doing nothing with it, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, of course I I said no. For those of you listening right now, by the way, I, I just need to tell the story of how this happened because it's so random. So I have researchers who find social media information on, you know, the, the all the famous poker players, uh, the top tournament players, top cash game players, and then um, we perform outreach to get them on the show. And so we we did the outreach. Um, we sent our message to Scott Seaver on Instagram, the man that uh, this whole interview has been with, and. He said, yeah, I would love to come on. And I'm like, awesome. And, and then I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, uh, I'm like, is this the, the poker player Scott Seaver? Because I'm like looking at the profile and I don't see any pictures of, of the poker player Scott Seaver. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then I see um, just like selfies with like Jack Black. And, I, and I'm like, what is happening right now? And I'm like, I, I'm like, I'm like, Scott, sorry, man. I, you know, we, we messed up. We researched the wrong guy. And... Uh, Scott's like, no, I play poker. <laughs> I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, but uh, 
you're like, are you, are you Scott Seaver? He's like, I'm Scott Seaver, exclamation point. And, I, and like, at this point, it's like, am, am, am I going to argue with the guy as to whether or not he is Scott Seaver? Like, he's obviously Scott Seaver. Um, so we booked the interview, and I literally had no idea what to expect. Like, I, I thought it, it, there was, like, the outside chance that um, the poker player Scott Seaver was, like, running a leveling game where he's just, like, pretending to be this other guy. I had no idea what to expect. I was, I was, I was, I was telling the truth. I am Scott Seaver. I know you're telling the truth. And <laughs> I was telling the truth. I, I play poker. <laughs> yeah. I was like, uh, I was telling my wife, I, like I showed the conversation to my wife and she just died laughing. Like, and I gotta say, I've, I've been, it's piqued my curiosity for like weeks now, ever since it got booked. I was like, I didn't know, had no idea what was going to happen. Didn't even really know how to prepare um, or who to prepare for. So, okay. With that story out of the way, um, it, it really, I have to say that even though this wasn't poker faced, um, this, I, I very much enjoyed this interview. This was a great conversation. Oh, thank you. Me too. Me too. It's been really fun talking to you. Yeah. Did, did you by any chance think of the piece of content? Oh God. Right. Um, you know, I would say that, like, I'm not much of a sort of a, a self-help kind of or motivational literature kind of guy, but I do garner a lot of fuel and inspiration from just great writing if it comes to a book, you know? And I, there are a couple books that have just stayed with me for a long time, you know, forever, and that can be fiction or nonfiction or whatever. But I mean, I was just thinking, just remembering like what, what, what are some of my favorite books? You know what I mean? Which for me would have actually provided inspiration, not, not because of any specific sort of directive in the book, but more just because of the art, you know? Sure. And I can think of like, you know, there's a, there's a book that for a long time I would, I would say was my favorite book and that's ask the dust by John Fonte. Um, that's, that's something that I just thought of. Like, I love that book. I love that book. I love Cormac McCarthy. Uh, I love, and then, you know, I love some, some nonfiction as well. There's a book called the power broker. by Robert Caro. Um, that's an incredible book. Uh, I just, it's, it's funny. Cause I'm, I was trying to think of like, if there's a podcast or if there's a, you know, and most of the podcasts I listen to are, are just like daily news podcasts or I don't know, stuff that's, you know, highly politicized at this point. Yeah. Talking about get your, getting your anxiety up. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but so it's nice to kind of retreat into some sort of, in some, in some beautiful writing, you know, some fiction or whatever. I mean, Crime and Punishment was a huge book for me. I love that book. I, I would say I'm 90% fiction right now uh, oh, as far yeah. as the, the books that I, I consume. Yeah. What are some of your favorite books? Super nerdy fantasy stuff. Like I, uh -huh. I love um, Patrick Rothfuss, The Name of the Wind, and The Wise Man's Fear. I've been reading a bunch of Brandon Sanderson, uh, V.E. Schwab. I love, I had the opportunity to interview her about a year ago. 
I would say though that's my go-to right now. I'm reading a lot of Brandon Sanderson. I want to get back in, into more nonfiction, but damn it, I like being entertained. And I, I just, yeah. I love building a story in my head, getting to know new characters in fantastical settings and empathizing with their problems. It's almost uh, kind of like escapism uh -huh. for me. And I just love it. Yeah, there's a book that um that I read that I really love called The Dog of the South by the writer Charles Charles Portis. It's it's full of really fun characters. You should check that out. Yeah, we'll put all these books in the show notes so that uh, the folks can check them out on their own. Uh, did we get to the last question? Let's just do it again. Uh, where can the where can the chasing poker greatness audience find you on the interwebs? Oh, right. Uh, well, there's my website, scottseaver.com, um, whose URL I'll never sell. And then there's also my <laughs> Instagram, million? which is, <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> Actually, that sounds, I could probably, yeah. All right, I'll sell it for $24 million. All right. Um, there's the number. And then there's my my Instagram, which is just S Seaver, so S-S-E-I-V, like Victor, E-R. And I think that's about it. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you. I've very much enjoyed it. And Likewise. Uh, hope, hope to keep in touch, sir. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Give it up one time for Scott. <laughs>